On today's episode, we talk with founder and CEO of Pipeline Equity. Uh, it's a great conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Katika. How are things? They're good. Good, good. Yeah, they're busy. Yeah, it sounds like good. it. Yeah, as yeah. a startup, you're always kind of on constantly, right? 24-7, you're just running and gunning and, yeah. you know, making things happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate you coming on the show. Of course. Uh, I've known you for several months now. And uh, when I started thinking about the show and the type of guests I wanted to have on and and whatnot, you came to mind. And I was like... Oh, yeah, she would be great because I think there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, have a passion to do something mm-hmm. or take their lives or careers to the next level, um, but they're afraid to or they don't know how to exactly. And so I think the fact that you worked a very successful uh, career in the Fortune 500 space mm-hmm. um, and then moved on to the kind of doing your own thing is is a great story. Let's so. go ahead and jump on in. Um I really want to start with how you grew up. I mean, you have a very interesting story. Yeah. Um, I know. Uh, so if you want to share a little bit about that, um, I, that's kind of a rabbit hole as far as like. <laughs> yeah, I could take up the whole show, going right? Down yeah. that like journey yeah. of, of how that goes. But essentially, yeah. um, your parents came from other countries yep. to America. Yeah. And then you were born in California. Yep. In okay. Napa Valley. In Napa yeah. Valley. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to kind of start there. Okay. Just kind of uh, how you grew up, you know, what, what your life was like as, you know, what were you into Mm -hmm. and kind of move through that, that journey. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Napa Valley, um, which... Uh, was a, is a pretty neat place to grow up, but yeah, I, I think mean, all the wine, it, yeah, that's oh, right. well. and probably sounds um, uh, a little bit more sophisticated than it is today. You know, this was a long time ago, uh, and my dad uh, was a born entrepreneur. And so when they moved to uh, when they moved to Napa, they actually bought um, 500 acres up on Mount Veeder, which is the east side of Napa, um, sort of above. So if you're familiar with Napa, it's above Oakville Grocery, sort of above where the Mondavi actual winery is. Um, And they they ran cattle for a while because wine is not, it takes a long time to be profitable. (laughs) You have to like plant the grapes and they have to grow and they, uh, right? Yeah, but yeah, but you know, 500 acres is a good place to run cattle. And so uh, and I um, and so we, you know, uh, there's pictures of me from my little girl you know, uh, when you plant the vines, you have milk box cartons to protect the vines from the weather and growing and all of that part. And we had horses and chickens and dogs. And um, I mean, I was riding. So you grew up on a farm. I, basically, a very hilly farm. But yeah, <laughs> a flat. farm. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. flat. But yes. Yeah. Okay. And I, you know, from the time I probably could sit up straight, I was on a horse. So I had a horse. And, um, and my dad would hold the reins until I was old enough to hold the reins. And uh, yeah, it was wow. a pretty cool place to grow up. Is that what your parents did for like a career then? Like for a while, yeah. Ran the farm. Uh, yeah, ran the ran the farm until it became a winery. Okay. Um, and my dad's wine actually won a medal. Um, his Cabernet won a medal in France. Wow. Yeah, which is very cool. Um, and then he sold that and uh, and then built a couple of hotels, one in Napa and then one in San Francisco. Okay. Um, and I think for me um, in particular, that was a really formative. Um, I mean, being on the fa- you know being on the farm, being on the ranch, we called. 
little oh, ranch. Oh, right. Because um, it had hills. Because it had hills and yeah. it had cattle. Right. Right. The ranch. So, uh, but being, um, but being, you know, that was really, and my dad was very, I was the youngest of six, and he was really inclusive of me in those, you know, in what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So when he built the hotel in San Francisco, he was actually negotiating uh, with Mayor Diane Feinstein. She was oh, mayor wow. of San Francisco at the time. And he actually took me with him, which is super interesting because I was about five. Okay. Um, and I had my coloring books and I sat on a little chair sort of in the back of the office. What a cool and, dad. Yeah. And I just watched him negotiate with her. And for me, it was such a formative moment of watching my dad create something out of nothing. Hmm. Right. And that hotel is actually the Park 55, which is in San Francisco. Oh, wow. um, and then also watching uh, the mayor, now Senator Feinstein, actually negotiate with my dad. So having hmm. this archetype of a very powerful woman hmm. at a fairly young age. And of course, we always got Christmas cards from Diane Feinstein. And, and my responsibility as a kid was to hang those on our doors. Okay. And, um, and I always just remember, uh, you know, it was a kind of a, it was very special when we got her card. Like it had a lot of meaning for me. Hmm. So, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. It was a fun. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so you kind of live this life on the ranch <laughs> the ranch, and normal kid just went to public school and you know did that whole whole thing and yeah sort of yeah <laughs> so my mom you know my mom knew that the game changer was education mm-hmm. right that that the best thing she could do to set me up uh, to be successful was to give me a really good education yeah. and at the time in Napa it was you know sort of iffy like you basically have public school or Catholic school and okay. I think she had gone to Catholic school and maybe not had a great experience so she was sort of worried as you know sort of would what did that be like for me so I went to I went to public school I went to the equivalent of a charter school um, then I went to a private school then back to public school and then I went to boarding school Ooh. and then I went to public high school okay so it was a, <laughs> a journey it was a journey <laughs> but I I think for me also though you know what the it taught me to be really independent and yeah. to be able to uh, function in lots of different environments really well. And yeah. I think ultimately that led to me being more successful because I was okay walking into a room where I didn't know anyone because right. I had to figure that out when I went to boarding school or when I went to a new school. And so Interesting. it was a good, and I did get a good education. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. So, um, you know, when you were in high school, were you involved in a lot of different like groups or clubs or were you the quiet like I was book very reader? studious. Okay. <laughs> I was in mostly honors classes. Okay. Um, I mean, kind of nerdy. Totally. Okay. Um, and I, but it was sort of like I didn't like I was friends with lots of different people, but I didn't quite fit in any one group, which I think in high school can be kind of a difficult endeavor because that sort of core group is yeah. so much of your identity in high school. I, uh, I wasn't. So we started preparing because education was so important. We started preparing for me to go to college when I was a freshman. Okay. So exactly wow. what class classes I would take and um, getting into honors classes and that entire structure. Uh, and I, I loved, I was a very good swimmer. So I was an athlete um, okay. and I was, a, and I was also in choir. So I loved music. So those were the two big things for me in high school outside of academics. Yeah. So when you were being groomed for college at yeah. high school, I mean, did you already know what you wanted to do? I mean, were you already aware, like, okay, I want to major in business or, or did you have to kind of figure those things out? 
early on, you think, or yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I um I don't know sort of where it came from. Like maybe it was watching lawyers on TV or or, or something like that. Or maybe <laughs> I was Locke. just always very yeah exactly. Maybe I or maybe I was just always very outspoken as a kid. But I uh, I want I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. That was mm. actually what I had planned to do. So yeah, that's a graduate degree. So you have to figure right. out what you're going to do undergraduate. And so I was actually a political science major with a okay. legal studies emphasis. And so that turned out to be fairly a fairly good um, basis for my education. But yeah. yeah. So then you go off to college mm-hmm. and you study law then or, or politics, politics with an emphasis in legal studies. Yeah. Law school to yeah. take your bar. And then how'd that go? I mean, did, college. Yeah. Did you eventually go to law school or did you once no. you got there, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> Well, I went, so again, like when I was in college, my parents were very clear. So they, uh, uh, my brother and I are the youngest and both of us, uh, by the time they got to us, we had contracts when we went to college. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like a binding contract. So you have four years and here's your, you know, here's the entire structure, um, of your, what your, what we will pay, we're paying. So here's, here's your obligation basically is what they were saying. Like we'll pay and here's what you have to do. Okay. And so I, you know, for me, politics was really fun because it it really enabled you to see, think about things less as sort of binary and far more ab- across sort of a continuum, right? And mm. we did a lot, you know, because I was a pre-law major, we did, you know, courtroom debate and we did a lot of, of those kinds of things where you would argue um, either side of a very controversial issue. And however, politics really enabled us to like take apart issues and sort of really understand um, what those issues were. And then I also spent uh, my junior year at Oxford um, in an overseas program. Hmm. And that was great because you actually are given a, an essay question, some books to read, and then you have to study, create an argument, write an essay, and then actually defend it with just your professor. And we had to do two of those a week, wow. so two term papers. And so it got me to be very good at assimilating lots of information, putting it together, um, writing a paper, and then defending that. And so that that structure was actually really good, I also think, for higher order thinking, sort of really mm-hmm. dissecting issues and thinking um, about them in a deeper way. Yeah. Wow. This is interesting. This is great. I love this conversation and like what I'm finding out about you because, um, you know, I think there's so many different types of people in the world, right? Like some people grow up with um, no privilege Mm -hmm. and some people grow up with privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we do with those things Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, turns out of how we become, you know, and, um, so it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, some would say that you grew up with privilege, right? I mean, you had two parents who were married that, you know, wanted what was best for you and helped you get through school and paid Mm -hmm. for your college and stuff like that. Um, and so it's, it's what I love about that though, is that like, like the Spider-Man quote, is like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, responsibility. right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's like, you've been given all this privilege and then yeah. now like coming full circle to see like what you're doing with that and yeah. like what you're choosing to put your time and energy in towards uh, seems just really awesome yeah. you know, and, and just really commendable. So I think oh, that's well, really, thank you. really cool. Thank um, you. Okay, so 
you go to college, you realize that you don't want to be a lawyer. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I was going to have to pay for law school. Oh, okay. So you're like, so I was like and I, better... I don't want to pay for law school. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to become a, I didn't want to pay for law school mm-hmm. and then regret it. Right. Right. Because like, then I was going to be like saddled. hundred thousand dollars of yeah. debt that I have to. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I knew the economics of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I went to law school and I had debt, I was going to basically uh, have less choice. Because I had bigger bills to pay. Yeah. And so I decided to actually move to Washington, D.C. And I worked as a paralegal, a litigation paralegal, for three and a half years with the idea of, if I'm going to pay for this, Mm -hmm. why don't I figure out if I actually want to do this? Uh, And it was a great experience. And I would say Washington, um, D.C., working in a law firm is a great place to figure out if you want to be a lawyer. Right. Um, And I got to work on a lot of super interesting cases. I got to work on a Supreme Court case. And it was was a very um, interesting time. And then ultimately, I decided that while I would have been a good attorney, I didn't want to do that. Hmm. So then at that point, was that difficult for you? I mean, was that something where you you felt like, oh, okay, I had this thing in my mind that I wanted to do. And then once you kind of got in the trenches, it was like, wait a second. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I probably, yes, I probably had, like, unfortunately, most people do in sort of their early to mid-20s of, okay, now what? Right. Right, now what am I going to do? And I knew I wanted to go back and get a master's degree. I just didn't know which master's degree mm. I wanted to go back and get. And so I so I started in the corporate world before there was email. <laughs> Where you had to send inner office, like, envelopes yeah, to right. each other. Yeah, you had, like, distribution <laughs> lists, and the little cart would come by, and you would put the papers in the cart and then they would drop it off. You know, you had to have multiple copies. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but yes. And people, yeah. So anyway, and so, so we had, um, it was all DOS based systems and it was all, you know, so it was all fingers, keystrokes and all of that. And so, and I was particularly good at that. I just had sort of stumbled in a knack for technology. And so, um, I eventually, and then I, um, left and worked because of my experience as a paralegal, I worked for Lexus Publishing, which is, um, is it one of the the largest uh, legal publishers, or at least at that time was, and they were really making the advent from on-premise software to online accessing their... their uh, legal research online. And so they hired me and we actually were part of the sales group, but we were, we, they called us training consultants. We were basically adoption. Like we were responsible for increasing adoption of the customers within that territory. And so that wow. was a great, that was a great experience. I got a great, I got um, experience in sales, which was awesome. And I loved, I got more experience in software, which was great. And then that I was still in DC and I was, um, sort of done being in DC. It's a, it's a great place to start your career. It is a pressure cooker of an environment. Mm, yeah. And I had grown up, um, skiing in Colorado and I come out here a couple of times to visit family while I was in DC. And then I just decided I'm done. I'm going to go move to Colorado. So I quit my job and packed up a U-Haul <laughs> drove to Colorado. Just like that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. With about, with about two months. Uh, yeah, it was like May I decided July I drove out. Because you're so, young, you're like adventurous. Right. It's yeah. like, let's, you know, let's just see what happens. Yeah. And wow. you have nothing to lose at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, there's no, you don't have a lot of responsibilities. If it doesn't work, you can move somewhere else, right? You well, know? I think that's interesting that you say that because I think that a lot of people, especially in their young 20s or whatever, they're just afraid, right? They're, yeah. they're that fearful. But I always tell people, I say, you know, if you really look at, you know, what what, what is the worst that yeah. could happen? Like, 
oh, you might have to go move in with your mom for, you know, several months until you figure things out. Like, is that yeah. that bad? You know, yeah. because I think for me, I've always lived in a space where I'd rather have tried and failed yeah. than not tried at all and yeah. always wondered what if, you yeah. know. And so that's kind of um, interesting that you kind of mm-hmm. just did that. You said, yeah. all right, I'm going to go out there and try my best. And if things don't work out, like that's okay and I'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, I also had a mom who was a lot like, I mean, my dad was like that, but my mm-hmm. mom was also like mm. that. And it, and so she came here in 1960 when she was 21. Um, it was the point at which she was emancipated and didn't need her parents' signature to emigrate. Oh, wow. And she just moved. She had some family in Ohio, but you know, it was basically like, I'm going to go figure this out. And one of the things that my grandmother always told my mom was, if you want to do something, don't wait for anyone. Hmm. And so she taught me that of that opportunity. You know, I think between watching my entrepreneurial entrepreneurial father and watching my mom, um, who was very much, uh, you know, I would say a trailblazer yeah. in her day. Uh, and you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to go do that because really, not everything you're going to be successful at, but truly, what is the worst can happen, right? Right. Yeah. So then you come out to Colorado, mm-hmm. and at that point, you're like, all right, I'm ready to get some master's degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple of them, A right? couple of them. Just crank them out. Yeah. Well, I did them a little bit apart. Okay. <laughs> um, I got my, I started, so I was here for a couple of years, uh, and then I started a master's degree at CU Denver okay. in educational technology, which is really a combination of um, adult learning, cog- you know, cognitive science, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of understanding how people's brains works. And uh, the technology part was all the coding part. So Mm. um, I learned how to code in four languages. I learned, um, you know, I I learned a a lot of that, those pieces of it. And so that set me up. Uh, I learned uh, user experience, user um, design. UI, UX Mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, and so that's because at the time uh, in in those days, so 2002, 2004, instructional designers had to know everything. So we had to right. be um, a developer. We had to like actual you know coding. We yeah. had to know how to be a PM. We had to know how to do analysis. It was a very multifaceted um, career, and so it was it was a great. It was a great learning experience. Yeah, and what a good time to get in on that, like as it's kind of like this emerging thing. And mm-hmm. then being a woman in technology, you know, is a very hireable, you know, skill. Yeah. Like to have. So were you working at all during this time or were you just focused on school? I worked part time. Okay. Uh, so I worked uh, part time for Sun Microsystems and then I worked part uh, part time for the university. Okay. Yeah. But I was I was single so I could um, I didn't need much to live on. Right. So I really focused at that time on getting my master's and learning everything I possibly could about that master's degree. Yeah. Wow. So so then you you get in there you you finish your master's, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, what, what are you doing after that? So I worked for the university for a year. I was I negotiated a full-time job with them, uh, really to buy me time, uh, because I wanted to find a company that I could uh, that I could uh, stay at for a long time. Right, kind of build up, work your way up the corporate ladder. and Yeah, and really, I was also looking for, I didn't want to be plugged into a process. I wanted to go, I wanted to be one of, if not the first, one of the first people in the department that they were hiring for a learning function, so I could actually define 
everything and how that, you know, how that looked. And I knew it would also be a great learning experience for me because I'd be responsible for more. So I'd have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, so I took a year and then I, uh, and then I, um, got a job at Kaiser Permanente and I worked there for eight years. Wow. Okay. Uh, and what were you doing at Kaiser? So I was, um, I, I had a number of promotions in those eight years. Uh, so I started uh, being responsible for uh, uh, all of the product uh, learning um, ecosystem for the region of Colorado. Um, and then eventually, um, at the end, I was responsible for all of curriculum management, all of um, uh, uh, program management um, for the entire um, uh, for the entire sales uh, wow. and marketing uh, and um, underwriting functions. So for, nothing for to do with coding or no, but I did use it in the beginning. Okay, and I also uh, because I had all of that background, I was able to understand how we needed to brand our templates and you know what photographs we needed to use mm. and how to use the brand guidelines for Kaiser Permanente and how to create a lot of structure that would ultimately enable us to execute faster. Interesting. And so, I mean, obviously that sounds like you're like a rock star because you go in there and, you know, you're this young woman who's like eager and has all this knowledge. And so you obviously get promoted a lot uh, within the eight years. And during that time, I mean... Were you pretty satisfied with your work and, and your job? And As long as I was moving forward. Yeah. For me, I think I am a natural person in motion. And so continuing to, continuing to move forward was really... Um, is re- was really an important piece for me. And, and I think I, I realized uh, the last two years that continue to, in order to continue to grow my career at Kaiser Permanente, um, I was actually going to uh, have to move to mm-hmm. Oakland because I, at that point, worked for, had worked for program office for the majority of my okay. tenure. And um, I didn't want to move back to California. So um, it was I, the choice was either stay in, you know, sort of stay in the role that I am or move or leave. And so I decided to leave. Interesting. Yeah, but it was a great place to start my career. I mean, I, it's a huge company. Right. Almost fifty percent of their um, employee base um, are covered. You know, are labor union employees, and so it's a great place to learn to navigate politics and negotiation and understand intricacies. And healthcare is complex, so yeah. it was a phenomenal place to start my career. So then, at that point, it was this crossroads of like move yeah. or move on. Yeah. <laughs> and you chose to move on. I did. Uh, so was that like, was that a difficult choice? Was that a, like hard for you or was it pretty simple for you to say, all right, well, I don't want to move. So I'm just going to start looking for something. And at that point, did you already have something lined up or were you ready to jump ship from, from Kaiser? Or? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I planned it. Um, and I, when I left, I knew, so it was a sort of an interesting time because I left Kaiser in 2013, which is when all the healthcare exchanges, um, from the, um, uh, what is it now called Obamacare, but was, you know, really coming online. So yeah. they were looking for people who had a lot of expertise that I had. Uh, and so when I, but when I left, I really knew that I wanted to get back to tech. Mm-hmm. I'd worked at my, some microsystems. I worked at Le- Lexus Publishing. I felt that that was really uh, an area that I wanted to get back to. And so I actually turned down um, three job offers and I took... Were they awesome? Yeah, they were good. And I took <laughs> um, six months off and I really planned 
and um, the how I would get from leaving where I was to ultimately being um, in technology. Yeah. And and then it took me about another six months after that to to land the job um, that I was looking for. Wow. Okay. So it was really intentional. Mm -hmm. It was really of you kind of planning, saying all right, this is what I want and mm -hmm. I'm going to hold out for that and, you know, pursue that. Now, the other interesting thing I think is during this whole time, you're married. Yeah. You're starting to have kids and start a family. Yeah. And so I'm sure you, there's a lot there as far as, you know, decision making mm -hmm. and um, that you kind of had to go through and, and weigh out and stuff. And I think it's yeah. interesting that your husband is a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. And so he was a stay-at-home dad through that transition because he's right. you know, he's been a stay-at-home dad for 10 years. And so uh so he, you know, so it was very much a conversation around um really, I mean a lot of our conversations are around investment and returns. Right? So <laughs> that's, that's fundamentally like, how you Can we meet after dinner? We need to talk about investment and return. But, but however, though, you should look at your career that way. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. you may not be putting something into the stock market, but you are investing in yourself. And you truly are the best benefit, the best bet that yeah. you can find. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're in control you're putting of your it into the stock market, you're betting on a whole bunch of other people to execute on what they say they're going to execute on. I mean, you have full control on whether or not you do what you say you're going to do, right? Yeah. And so for me, it was always about, okay, so we're going to, we're going to, all our decision, our conversations, and even with Pipeline, we're the same thing of, okay, we're going to, we're going to invest this amount of time, right? And then ultimately it's going to lead to this return, right? Mm. So that was the, the conversation that we had. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And he was always pretty supportive of you. I mean, I'm sure there was <laughs> He he was because plate throwing. And <laughs> no, no. He's a very he I met is, him. He's a very like he, nice guy. He's a very nice guy. He's super solid. Yeah. Like he is um almost unflappable. Right? Yeah. He is he is incredibly which, uh, just which, what a strong woman needs is yeah. an unflappable man. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, well, or someone who's willing to own their space, right? <laughs> right. And that's what I would say. Um, who's not, who's either not like, you know, who's not going to step into your space, right? Because yeah. that would be a mistake. <laughs> um, but they, uh, but they, um, uh, and so, so for, you know, so we have, you know, very, you know, those are all the discussions that we always had about that, right? Which is yeah. what does that look like? And, and I think, you know, uh, you know, when he looks at it, it's about it's about two things. One is about our family, right? So, what does that look like, not just for him or for me, but um, for our kids and for our future? Um, but then also, like my job was to deliver, and if I delivered consistently, just like you know, then then it's like okay, well, you know, that all right, I'm I'm sure it'll be fine. Right, right? I'm delivering. Like you go through all the structure of it and you have the very detailed conversation and then the trust is that you'll actually execute on what you say you'll do. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so you leave Kaiser. Yeah. Where do you go? And, and at this point, I mean, do you have an idea? Like, are, are you in your mind like, I want to be the head of the department or the CEO of a company like like was that goal or was it just like you're just grinding like every day you're like I'm going to show up I'm going to do my best I'm going to work hard oh, no. and mm -mm. wherever that leads yeah um uh, every job is a transaction mm. 
Every job is a transaction. I will do this work and there will be some benefit. <laughs> right. And either you will give that to me or somebody else will. Yeah. That is the, so I had made a when I started at Kaiser, I had made a 15-year plan um, to go from where I was, which was sort of a mid-level individual contributor, um, to being a vice president within 15 years. Okay. And I beat that plan by five years. Wow. So there was always very much like, okay, this, so I'm here. And for me to get from A to B, this Mm -hmm. is what, I mean, if you look at it from a business perspective, this is what's required by the market. And then for me, you get to get to B to C, this is, and so I knew exactly the visibility I needed, the exposure I needed, the Mm. um, behaviors I needed to demonstrate, uh, you know, you know, what I needed to dress like. I mean, all of that was also important. Just a a self-awareness, really. That's right. Of like the, but the, what is the brand you're building and how do you get uh, to where you want to go? Right. And what are the... Um, what are the um, opportunities that are going to give me uh, what I need to continue to move forward? Hmm. Interesting. So, all right. So then obviously you get to where you wanted to go with Kaiser. Yeah. And then you're, you're moving on. And so where do, where, do, where do you end up? So I went to Service Source for a year. Okay. So that was a sort of mid-market company. Mm-hmm. They were in high growth stage. They've been public for a couple of years. Um, and what they were looking for was a global learning leader to come in and structure um, all of their uh, learning um, professionals across the globe. And it was fundamentally a sales and ops um, company. It's basically a BPO for Mm -hmm. renewal sales. And so it was a great fit for me. Most of the work I'd done at Kaiser was sales ops, so I knew that space really well. I knew sales process. I knew how to structure that. Uh, And because being first generation and also, you know, um, my parents being immigrants and having lived in England, I you know, had familiarity between cross-cultural intelligence and what that actually looks like. Um, and so it was great. I, um, I managed teams in San Francisco and Denver and Nashville, um, in Dublin and Liverpool and um, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore and Tokyo. Wow. So it was awesome. I mean, yeah. it was, and I ha- and just uh, and so my challenge was, uh, none of these people really chose to come over to my team. Someone in senior leadership decided we're going to create this position, and they're all going to go from a local reporting structure to a global p- reporting structure. And you know, you look at those cultures. So the U.S. culture and the European culture and the Asian culture, and you have really different culture, and then even subcultures within that, right? Because um, Japan is very different from Malaysia. And what is, you know, what are the sort of normal, you know, uh, cultural, cultural norms there. And so it was a fantastic challenge to, you know, be a woman as well, um, uh, to come in and really assemble that global team and make them feel uh, like a team and that they cared about each other and that they were glad that this change had been made, even though they weren't part of making that decision. Mm. Um, And we, you know, uh, Service Source is a mid-market company, so it wasn't like we had a huge budget to make that happen and so figure out how do you do that when you don't all get to see each other and I don't always go get to see everybody else and so it was a really great challenge and one of the great things when I actually left Service Source one of my employees in Singapore said was sent me this beautiful email about um, how he had rarely seen a leader do so much in so little time and what a um, remarkable job I had done of really making them feel like Mm. heard and valued and connected to their colleagues and like a global team together. Wow. And so it was, it was, it was Honoring. just, yeah, yeah, completely. 
That's cool. And then, so you weren't there that long. I was there for a year. Oh, a year. And then what? The uh, next job came and said, hey, we want you. Yeah. I had the opportunity to go um, to SAP, which is, uh, you know, the world's, I always say it's the world's third largest software company. So wow. 74% of the world's transactional revenue actually runs through um, an SAP system. Um, we just don't always know that it's an right. SAP system. And so I had the opportunity to come in and to really hit the ground running and to do, they were doing some um, really quick turns on their course catalog, which is, you know, lots of um, learning speak, but it was a great opportunity to work with some incredible people who are really in the top of the top um, yeah. in, in terms of the learning field. And so I took it and I had, you know, a lot of uh, interesting um, opportunities in my, in my time there. Wow. That's awesome. So you're there. And then at what point did you start to have an, like a, a burning to say, all right, I think I'm ready to do my own thing? Yeah. Or, or did it just fall upon you? I mean, how did that, how'd that happen? I mean, I think those things are like slow burns and then you get kicked off the cliff. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I've been there. You know, it's like, it's almost like, I don't know. And so, so we, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, so I, you know, my um, original intention within my field was to be a chief learning officer. And so when I was at SAP, I was really one step away from that type of role. Mm -hmm. And, and I started to question, you know, I have probably half my uh, working life left, and what do I really want to do with mm. that? Right, I don't. I um, being a chief learning officer is a very important role for sure. I didn't foresee myself as doing that role, even moving up in larger and larger companies um, for the rest of my career. Um, I had sort of um, entrepreneurial gnawings probably from the time I was a kid, um, but also really like the safety and security of a, a job and a paycheck. Yeah. Clock in, and mm -hmm. clock out. <laughs> yeah, well, I sort of never clocked out, but um, <laughs> I but imagine. yeah, but I um, and so I you know I started to think about um, my parents' experiences. I started to think about um, what what were the what were the unique things that I might be able to do. Um, you know, that, that did, you know, th that I might be able to do and sort of bring, um, kind of bring to bear in the world. And I think, you know, when I was thinking about the chief learning officer role, uh, you know, one of the things I thought of was like, well, wait a second, I should really be trying to be a CEO. So why don't I go back and get my MBA? Because most CEOs, like you need some business, right. even though I'd been in the business world, I knew that they were not going to be looking for their next CEO, um, you know, tapping the chief learning officer <laughs> right. on the, t hey, on the, yeah, uh, by on the, the way. shoulder. Yeah, that, yeah, that was unlikely to happen. And so I thought, well, I'll go back my, and get my MBA and I'll kind of, you know, figure out like what my path toward becoming a CEO is, right? Mm. So is it being a COO in a mid-market company and then, you know, getting to be a CEO? What does that actually look like? And in the process, I'll get a great degree. Um, right. And then I can kind of figure it out from there. So going back to school, yeah. I mean, was that something that you felt looking forward to it kind of, or was it kind of like, oh, I got to go back to school? <laughs> well, I think for me, you know, the first time I got my master's degree, it had, it had been with me for so long that it carried so much hope for me of what my next career would be. And so I think um, for me, going back to get my second master's degree, there was uh, just this sense of, 
okay, I'm not sure what's going to be on the other side of this, but I'm sure it'll be great. Mm -hmm. And I think also this um, sense of gratitude, I mean, gratitude for the ability, you know, to to go do that as well. And it certainly was not easy because I was, you know, global vice president um, at SAP. I have uh, two kids, even though my husband is a stay-at-home dad and he's amazing, but I actually like to see my family at some point. I do love Um, them. And I think, uh, and then, you know, getting an MBA is, you know, you have, uh, you know, 20, you know, so you have eight hours of class uh, once a week, and then you have 20, um, 20, 25 hours of homework a week. I mean, so I, I actually think that that experience prepared me to be a startup founder. Because, Going back to school? Oh, yeah. Because there were nights, you know, I, I'm in my 40s, right? So I was like, hi, I just really can't survive on less than five hours of sleep. I'm just not sure I can do that. And so I learned to survive on, and I'm, I don't do this so much anymore, but I did learn to survive on two hours of sleep um, because sometimes that was just the only time I could get a paper done. <laughs> Take a power nap. <laughs> yeah. And then, then, and then get up. And so, uh, and, 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 I, and so that's what I did. And so what happened was when I was done with school, It was like, being a startup founder is busy, but it is nothing compared, I think, in my opinion, to being an executive, getting your MBA, and also trying to see your family some portion of the time. Yeah, I could see that being very difficult. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, all right, good. Bring it. You know, let's go. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times the things in our lives that we go through shape us Mm -hmm. for the next journey or the next chapter of, of what we're going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. So then you get that MBA, you're, you're still, the, are you a chief learning officer at this no, point? Or you, no, you're not I was yet. a VP. I actually okay. left four months before I, uh, for, I left SAP four months before I was done with my MBA. Okay. And then started pipeline, started pipeline. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. Here we are. Equal payday, 2017. Uh, Equal payday. All right, so then, so tell us what, you know, tell us how you, that process, that that thinking process of you're working a job and you're thinking, all right, I think I want to do this. I think there's a need for it. Mm -hmm. Where, I mean, what does that look like? What I mean, walk us through your thought process. Or obviously, you have a partner uh, in the business, mm-hmm. so co-founder, yeah, yeah, co-founder. So your your friends or something. It's like, hey, let's do this. Uh-huh. I mean, what, well, that was a long process to convince Stefan to leave his current gig and come yeah. work for a pipeline. Hey, do you want like you know <laughs> probably, insecurity? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> well, he so so Stefan actually has done two startups, okay. uh, but he had a very well operating startup at the time. So so uh, so which which so it was probably um, you know a year a year and a half in in the making of convincing him that. Yeah, he would be the right person to co-found yeah. the team or co-found the company um, with me, and so um, uh, so you know, and sort of come over full time. So that was great, and I think um, you know, you really need people who. Uh, startup life is not for the faint of heart. I mean, you have to be pretty solid because you have lots of yeah. things that come your way. Uh, there is. And I would say, you know, in the corporate world, especially today, there is to some extent, I mean, there's, you have, you know, uh, some um, sort of structures of support, right? But there is a lot less security than there used to be, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, any moment you could you could get laid off right. or, 
you know, I know my wife's grandfather and he worked for um, Honeywell for 30 years of his life. And at the end it was like, oh, sorry, we don't have any money for a pension. And, you know, thanks for your time. It was like, wow, like that stinks, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, there's many times where it's like, I'd rather be in control of my own destiny than somebody else in control of it. Right. You know? You're right. Right. And, you know, and so, so I think, yeah, so, so it was, uh, so we started uh, Pipeline and um, that's been an incredible adventure. Yeah. So for people who don't know what Pipeline Pipeline is. is. The Pipeline Magic. The Pipeline Magic. (laughs) uh, Why don't you just share a little bit about what Pipeline is Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, your role and, you know, the goals of it and yeah. whatnot. Sure. So I'm the CEO. Congratulations. So I jumped over you made to the top. role. I just, <laughs> I plucked myself. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, from the learning organization. But I, uh, so Pipeline is a SaaS platform uh, that uses artificial intelligence to actually increase financial performance of companies through closing the gender equity gap. And so what we do is, we, well, what, where it came from is we actually did original research across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in gender equity, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. And so we actually, um, that's the model that we operation, operationalize through the pipeline system. And um, the power of our system is we actually API into uh, into cloud-based HR systems like um, Workday or SuccessFactors. There's a number of them, but those are the most well-known. Um, and we intercept HR decisions before they're made, and then we actually um, provide recommendations, so across hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotions, so which is basically the majority of your human capital decisions. Yeah. We provide recommendations, and then we quantify the projected economic value of those um, recommendations with the idea that um, when you close the gender equity, uh, equity gap in companies, you actually improve your economic footprint. And so you can see those actually happening in parallel. Hmm. So technology kind of came full circle. Like you, you know, your first back in the early 2000s, learning all this technology stuff. And then now here we are in 2016 and you're back in the technology space and then you're providing a service to companies to kind of help them grow and, and further their diversity and their gender equity. Their gender and equity. 2017. 2017. So 2017. Yeah. Right. And it's 2018 yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, when you're deciding what you wanted to do, yeah. was it just naturally, like, did you ha- always have a passion for gender equity or uh, were you you doing this on the side or like, how did that, Yeah, yeah. there's, could have been a lot of different things you probably could have started and done. I mean, a consultant, I mean, for all the experience you have, you could have done so many things. How did gender equity really evolve into what you're doing? And how did you even have the idea of like, I think I could technologize this. I don't think that's a word, but <laughs> you know, I yeah. could essentially figure all these things out yeah. and create a technology around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, uh, for me, I mean, I studied, you know, if you're a political science major, you are likely to study um, uh, equal rights at some point and probably, you know, uh, not women's studies, but women's rights. Like mm-hmm. there's a, we took a class on that. Uh, and so, and so that's an interesting, it's an interesting uh it was an interesting thing to, to study. And, and I think, um, you know, I'm the youngest of six kids. I have four older sisters and I had watched them, um, struggle, 
uh, and their kids struggle because of their lack of economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a really young age thought, I remember at five years old, just thinking, I am never going to do that. I'm just never going to do that. And I don't know where that came from. Right. But and uh, and so and then so, you know, in college, you know, probably like most college students, I was like, oh, this is interesting and did some work sort of in that space, volunteer work when I was Mm -hmm. when I lived in Washington, D.C. in my early 20s and then just thought. I don't really think this applies anymore. I think this is like from the 1960s and I don't Mm. really see, um, this was like mid 1990s. I don't really see how this applies to me today. Like, I don't, I don't, um, I don't really see that. And so I was like, I'm just going to go, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, do my work and kind of figure it out. And, and what I, what I experienced in the corporate world was, um, well-meaning people, but was really that gender bias, you know, Hmm. that, um, and, and fundamentally for me, um, uh, you know, I knew that having worked mostly in sales operations, that if companies were going to fix this issue, it could not just be a social issue. That if it is fundamentally only about a social issue, it is optional. Right. It's just optional because ultimately companies are in uh, business to make money. And if they don't make money, they won't be in business very long. Right. Right. And so I thought, well, um, how how might you know, how 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 might it actually come together where, you know, those two things might actually happen? And it was actually um, a question that someone had asked me um, about uh, if I ever thought the pay gap would be closed in our lifetime. And I said, well, not until we make it an economic issue. Sure. And then I thought, I think I can solve that. And that was really where by just the way, like, it's like, just like oh, that. interesting. I think so. Th- so then we did the study because it was like, that's a great idea, but don't fall too in love with your idea. Mm-hmm. Um, actually figure out if there's some meat behind it. And that was really the genesis of, um, you know, a figuring out if pipeline was something that people would actually buy. Yeah. So now uh, you live that startup life. Yeah. It's kind of like always on, constant, trying to grow this thing. And, um, you know, what what is next for you? Like, what do you do? You have this. 15 year goal, you know, <laughs> yeah, my job, right. I mean, my goal to is sell to, the Microsoft for a hundred million dollars yeah, and bounce. And bounce. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, in the startup journey, you, you certainly need to have your exit plan. You know, what, what is your exit in terms of what is the liquidity event that will ultimately right. give your investors a return for the money that they have invested in your yeah. company. Um, and that's important. And my, you know, my goal with pipeline is, uh, is, you know, I mean, sort of very tactically, is to grow the company mm-hmm. um, really quickly, and you know that we've seen that trajectory really uh, take hold, uh, and you know that's really what we're focused on. I think, you know, more broadly than that, um, we uh, really talk about the economics of gender equity, mm-hmm. and um, and whether or not you care about it as a social issue, it's fundamentally a massive economic opportunity, right? Yeah. And we are leaving um, two trillion dollars of GDP on the table in the United States, twelve trillion globally because of our lack of gender equity. Hmm. And so, and so looking at how do we solve that problem? Right. And so we will solve the social issue, but we also solve the economic issue. Right. Yeah. And sort of understanding the threads that it actually plays into, um, our economy. Right. So, um, you know, uh, the, uh, women over 56% of, um, uh, children who um, live in poverty live in uh, households held, um, 
headed by single moms, hmm. right? So, so just sort of understanding if you can use gender as a marker for something, then we have something, an issue here, right? And it's yeah. not just limited to women. I think that's one of the other issues around the gender equity conversation is oftentimes we equate gender equity with women's rights. Mm -hmm. And actually women are 50% of that equation. Right. The other 50% are men. And so we need to make sure that when we're talking about gender equity, we're actually including men in the gender equity conversation. Yeah. Um, and really, um, you know, making sure that their voices are heard um, binary definitions of gender actually impact men as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, the suicide rate among uh, men is four times higher than women. Mm. Um, that's because of gender inequity, you know, yeah. so I think, we're, and so, you know, we're just really looking at those, um, you know, looking at that holistically is an important piece. Right. Which I think is really interesting and um, obviously a, a, an aspect of how you approach it. You know, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, man bashing, mm -hmm. you know, that happens, uh, when it comes to when the conversation of gender equity uh, pops up, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, hatred and anger towards men. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, like you said, it's like, we need to work together, right? Like right. men need to be part of the conversation. They can't right. feel ostracized or, um, you know, pushed out of the conversation yeah. because they've failed or, that they're wrong. It's like, well, we, we need to fix the issue and right. we have to do it together. Right. Know? And they're stuck in the same system that we are. So I'm not justifying any of the really bad things. That right. Happen, of course. Right? Of course. And understand that by they are also stuck in that. So, so how are we going to get those voices or, you know, we, and, and there are a lot of really good men who um, have stepped up into the gender equity conversation mm -hmm. and more are doing that. And we need them in the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, how, how have you been the CEO of a startup? Mm -hmm. What has that been like for you? Is it, had you imagined it the way that it's rolling out? Um, do you feel like you're working more? I mean, you sound like such a hard worker and like you're constantly busting your butt. So yeah. it seems like a natural, like, this isn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> to some extent, there's just less like, okay, at the end of the year, you will get this bonus. Right. right? right. Like, I'm going for an exceed so I can get an upside modifier on my bonus. Right. right. You're like, my bonus might be like five years out. Right. right. You yeah. know, so there's a bit of a long tail. It certainly has the possibility to be bigger, but it also has the possibility to be nothing. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. The, Right? There's so, a gamble. Yeah, it's a high risk, high reward. I I think uh, you know, for me the hard worker piece is, is probably a couple things. One is probably it was just how I was wired. Yeah. I mean I see that because I watch my kids and my kids are really hard workers. Hmm. Um, I think the other piece of that was being the daughter of an immigrant and the daughter of a refugee and understanding what they went through to be here and uh, and to have the opportunities that we have here. Mm -hmm. um, and in and you know really uh, growing up we were taught to never give up and to always do your best. Like hmm. you didn't need to be perfect because that's the, but always like if you if you do something think about was that my best effort is that really the best that the I could have I done in, and yeah. so I think for me the hard working I've always you know I, it has always been about that 
it's not been hard work for the sake of hard work. It's probably another investment discussion, which is <laughs> I'm going to invest this amount of effort because right. at some point it's going to have a return. But I mean, you know, like when I was in college, um, I, I was a smart, I mean, you know, I was certainly a hard worker, but I, I didn't, I figured out a structure and strategy on how to study so that I wasn't like always stuck in the library. Right. Yeah, and so you, I, like life hacks. Right. Exactly. It, that was before we knew what life hacks were. <laughs> right. You were hacking your own life. <laughs> we just didn't have email before, yet. Right. <laughs> in so your office, no everything. That's right. They were like, remember my senior year in college, they're like, we're going to, I don't know, they had like this whole new, so when I started college, we had word processors. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations. So you got to see your paper on this little, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> but that's better than a typewriter, right? Well, it's better than a typewriter, but a little bit harder to figure out where you have to make yeah. the, air, the correct what paragraph. Am I on? Yeah, that's right. How long is this paper? Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I think you know. I, I, again, I think it's it's that like how how might you take it? You know, how might you take the gift that was given to us to mm-hmm. be here and really maximize that opportunity? Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So coming up, I mean, did you have any? Um, I'd love to hear if you have any like resources or you know things that really inspire you that yeah. you you know share with people like you know oh I this one book is so awesome I highly recommend you mm-hmm. read it I mean were there things like that 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 really impacted your life that you either you know bought the book for somebody and, and gave it to them or that you always tell people like hey if you want to like start getting inspired to you know work your best or whatever that is this is a great resource I mean. That's a good question. I don't have one. Yeah, you have many. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, when I was younger, um, there's a book by Bryce Courtenay called The Power of One, mm-hmm. um, and there's an, a, a movie. And so uh, it was a, it's a really powerful story about how uh, the experiences of one boy and then obviously becoming a man um, actually brought disparate groups together um, in South Africa. Hmm. And that's a, it's just a really powerful story of the... Um, experiences we have and how we can use them to uh, overcome, but really to make the world a better place. And so that spoke to me when I was in college and is still one, is my favorite movie today and my favorite book. Um, and then over time, there are things that uh, certainly have helped me. I mean, I'm a huge uh, Brene Brown fan, so I, you know, I often think that Pipeline probably, like I was sort of willing to take the leap because I read Daring Greatly. Mm. Um, and a lot of her uh, passages in her new book, which is Braving the Wilderness, um, is speaks to a lot of what Pipeline's brand is, and that's serendipitous. It's not by design. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for me, I'm just trying to think of other books that I have read, but I, you know, I mean, I love the work that Tony, Tony Robbins does, and I think, you know, just owning where you are and what you can do with it. You know, um, our, our lives, uh, we, there is so much we can do, and our lives don't need to be perfect to be able to do it, right? And, yeah. and the, the actually, Brene, one of Brene Brown's book, which is less well-known, is called The Gifts of Imperfection, and it goes through this whole structure. And, and I think, you know, we have in our... Uh, society, this archetype of I have to be perfect to belong, 
right? So we, she talks about sort of putting on your armor and looking like what you need to look like so that other people will like you. And, and unfortunately, it like creates the very thing that we fear, mm. which is disconnection from other people. And in fact, what we are all connected by is our imperfections, like our common humanity. Right. And so how might we... How might we come together around that? And, uh, you know, and, and I, I just, I love that work and sort of that acceptance of who you are and who you're not, and it's okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, we are, you know, coming up to this end of the show, but I have like so many other questions I want to <laughs> ask you. I'm, I'm, it, I think that a common theme throughout your life that I could see is that you kind of like what your mom taught you, right? It's like, do your best. Yeah. And, you know, show up, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, and do your best. Mm-hmm. Don't give up. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of those things where anybody can apply that to their life. Right. Yeah. I mean, no matter what you're doing is you can always self-evaluate and say, mm-hmm. am I doing my best? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think when you do that, I think you see that success. Right. I think in your life you had school, you did your best and you graduated mm-hmm. and then you got jobs and you did your best and you kept getting promoted. Yeah. And you really, you could have kind of created any type of life that you wanted, you know, worked your way up to CEO of some company or whatever. Um, but now you've, you know, chosen to start your own company and, mm-hmm. and kind of live that startup life and, and also on a mission to spread the gospel of gender equality and, um, you know, raising awareness about that because you also have a speaking career that you're trying to get into as many places as you can and, you know, share your knowledge and, and, uh, your story to, uh, enlighten people, you know, on that. Yeah. And I think the people who will, you know, I would say too, you know, for us, we think about where is the best place for me to talk to people, um, where it will have an impact Mm -hmm. and really talk about the economics of gender equity so that they understand the, you know, fundamentally, this is an economic issue. Right. What I think is really powerful because nobody talks about that. Yeah. Like, I feel like, like you said, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, Democrat, Republican, when you can look at this as an economic issue, everybody can come together around that. Right. It's like, well, we may not agree on, um, you know, who should be president, but we can agree that we, everyone wants to make more money and be more successful. That's right. right? And so right. like, let's fix this problem. And I think right. when you're putting it through that lens, I think it, it includes so many people. Right. Right. Which it, is it, our intention. Right. I mean, our intention is that, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, gender equity or that sort of fight for that has, has been really viewed as binary, which is either you're for or you're against. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, if you look at it, it's a continuum. People have different experiences. They mm-hmm. have different perspectives. And how do we bring all everybody together to really talk about that? Yeah, that's that's so great. I mean, I think, um, I think that's just really awesome. Well, I want to get just a couple fun questions yeah, in. Yeah. All right, you know, so uh, favorite food? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea. Like pizza? Do you like, I mean. I like pizza. I like Indian food. Oh, Indian food's yeah, delicious. Like Indian, yeah. Okay. Okay. What about your first job? What was your, do you, did you ever have a crappy job? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean you, who hasn't? Those are character building experiences. <laughs> they are, right? Yeah. right? It makes you value the not crappy jobs. Exactly. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, so when I was eight, um, which was really probably technically my first job, but, you know, skirting child labor laws, um, I negotiated with the local health food store in um, Napa. Um, so I did two things. One was, you know, like the sign. So I wore like the front and back sign. Oh, you sign, were the like, sign kid. Out, yeah, because I was like the sign kid. And then, yeah, which is, yeah. And then the other was I um, helped them do inventory okay. when I was eight. Like, you know, they closed down. Eight I, years old. And I did inventory for them. So that was my first uh, my first sort of technical job. And they, they were obviously were friends of my mom's. Right. But I was like, I want a job. I want to go earn money. And my mom was like, okay. That's awesome. So I went and negotiated with them on when I needed to be there and how much I would get paid and all of that. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, first car? Uh, Buick Century. Oh, it was a, it was a, a, a I tank? borrowed it from my mom. Okay, yeah. nice. <laughs> it's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, favorite Starbucks drink? I just like uh, coffee. Just, just tall coffee. I'll cream, put some cream. sugar. Yeah, no sugar. Okay. Just a little bit of cream. You put it in yourself. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Otherwise, it's too much. Yeah, it's too like, sweet. Light on the cream. Yeah, exactly. Um, what skill would you love to learn? Like basket weaving or... You know, it would be so fun to be an absolutely fantastic singer. Okay. I mean, you, I'm like a, a... You dabbled. I dabbled. Yeah. I was in, um, I was in musicals when I was a y- okay. young kid. Fiddler I, on the Roof. Y- yes, I was, in, oh, I was an you? orphan in Fiddler on the Roof, for <laughs> nice. sure. I mean, who kid? Right. What kid yeah. has not, who's in a musical has not been in that, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I was in musicals. I played four instruments as a kid. Uh, and then I was always... So yeah, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, de- I'm a good singer, okay. but I am not like... You know, an amazing. Right. I think that would be an incredible thing to be able to do. Oh, and play guitar. Okay. Yeah, I and dabbled in that, but again. Well, there's always that second opportunity, you know. <laughs> once, right. once you, you know, start having more time. Yeah. <laughs> I can start to pick up the guitar. Exactly. Again. Yeah. The rocker. You could include it into your talk. You know. Oh, there we like go. Yeah. Some sort of like sing along. There we go. Yeah. There we go. I have to work on that. Um, do you have any hidden talents? Like. Oh. I don't know. That's a good. That's a good it's question. Like, Do I have any hidden it's like, talents? I can whistle with my nose. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I yeah, hidden talents. I don't know. I'm really good at processing a lot of information. I mean, but that is not a hidden talent by at all. I can run a spreadsheet like nobody's like business. Like nobody's business. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, that's a good question. I always think that those questions because you're not always aware of them. Right. That, like, you don't I think it's love, like. Yeah, like well, everybody would, can eat five Oreos at once, right? I mean, <laughs> I would love to like ask my kids and my husband, like, what do yeah. they think my hidden yeah. talent is? It's like, you know? mom, yeah, yeah. you know, that's that, awesome. that would be an interesting question. That's cool. Well, cool. Well, listen, I just, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's awesome the work that you're doing and I just hope that you continue to have lots of success and that you continue to move forward and uh, change more lives through what you're doing Um, and then hopefully you inspire people along the way that hopefully um, you know if you're watching and you heard Katika's story um, work hard do your best show up um, 
Believe in yourself no matter what. Believe in yourself no Even matter what. Even when other people don't believe in you. Yeah, it's so important, right? I mean, yes. we can get so discouraged. Um, but like you said, it's like we are in control of our destiny and we are the best um, investment, we've, investment got. we've got, you know? So I thank yeah. you for coming on. Thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Mark. I yeah. really appreciate it. Awesome. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, you can always reach out to Katika. Where can people find you? Katika Roy on Twitter. On Twitter, at Katika Roy. Uh, hit her up if you have any questions. Um, if you want to invest $100 million, <laughs> I'm sure she'll take your money. <laughs> uh, not quite that much. <laughs> yeah. You want to keep some of the company. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and uh, we'll see you here in a couple weeks. All right. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you.